welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I am your host, Cody McBroom, and today with me is our Chief Science Officer of the Tailored Coaching Method team, and that is Dr. Brandon Roberts, because today is a research review podcast. And today we're going to get into three specific topics. As always, uh, this one is one that we have repeated many times and that is intermittent fasting because some new research has came out on intermittent fasting and Brandon wanted to bring it up uh, because we have reviewed this specific uh, researchers stuff on here before. And I've actually interviewed him and that is Dr. Grant Tinsley. So he's one of the leading researchers of intermittent fasting when it comes to athletes, people chasing body composition changes, um, anyone who is in the study that's actually resistance training. So the most applicable intermittent fasting studies um, as a whole that are going to involve or be applicable to us, Taylor Coach Method, you, the listener of this podcast, are usually coming from Dr. Grant Tinsley, which is why I interviewed him and why we have brought him up multiple times on our research reviews. So we dove into that and that kind of led into a discussion on intermittent fasting as a whole, what what the studies have said, what the, the trend of research on intermittent fasting is starting to point out and really get us to believe where we think it's heading, where we see application, where we think that application is misunderstood or misrepresented. Um, so we dive into a lot with that and I think you're really going to like it. The next one we dive into is uh, ketones. So the question being, are ketone supplementations worth it? Um, and uh, this is an interesting one because I've never been a fan of ketones. So I was excited about this one because, uh, you know, I've gotten questions about it. We've seen it everywhere. They came out with different types of ketone supplements. And then they started, quote unquote, fortifying things with ketones. There was even ketone water for a while. Um, and the truth is, I just never really bought into it. I thought that it was hype. I thought that it was uh, just mass marketing. And I thought that the whole ketogenic uh, culture and thing was just pushing this motive a little bit too hard. Is there application for ketogenic diets? Of course. Um, but trying to push it as far as making supplement stuff, I wasn't a fan of it. Now, there is application for ketone supplements, as you can imagine. Otherwise, it would not have gotten this far. Uh, but the research just isn't that great. It's not anything that made me stop and go, damn, maybe this is something I want to consider. So we are going to dive into that today, and we're going to explain to you what the research has told us, why it is telling us that, and where, if any, it may have some application. And then the last one is probably the most applicable one for you, the listener, and for most people who work with us at Tailored Coaching Method, and that is how accurate are activity trackers? So we're going to talk about things like the Aura Ring, the Apple, Fitbit, Whoop Band, Garmin, watches, stuff like that. Um, there's quite a bit. In fact, when he went through the research, there's 423 different devices from 132 different brands, uh, and that's just what he looked into. So there's a lot here, right? But we dive into how accurate these things actually are, what the research is showing about these trackers and which points of these trackers are worth paying attention to, um, i.e. like stress, HRV, sleep, step count, energy expenditure, things like that, and what you should be really using them for and how you should be approaching them, what the perception of these things you should be using them for. So really taking these tools and showing you what the research says, but most importantly, showing you how to actually apply them because yes, before and now, even after the study, I am still a fan of trackers, So, uh, but it's not because the research was amazing on trackers. It's because the takeaway from this research was uh, very applicable to coaching, which you're going to hear in a sec. So as always, guys, thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoy what you're about to hear, please do me a favor and leave us a five-star rating and review and make sure you share this podcast with a friend or on your Instagram story and tag myself, Cody McBroom, which my handle is going to be in the description of this podcast, as well as Dr. Brandon Roberts, our chief science officer at Tailored Coaching Method. Share it on your story. Tag us. We want to thank you for listening. We want to share it on our story as well. And without any further ado, 
let's get into some science. All right, research review. Uh, I actually believe this is going to be November. Um, it may be October. Wh whatever you guys heard on the intro as you were listening to this or uh, whatever month it is as you're listening to this, we don't know. We've had some crazy schedules here between the two of us and um, things got pushed back. So we might actually be resetting a little bit. But nonetheless, we have three topics to cover with you guys today. Um, all, as always, very applicable. Um, and I'm excited to get into these because um, we got a few that we've actually kind of touched on before. Um, one for sure, which is the first one we're going to get, get into, which is intermittent fasting. Um, and I'm excited to hear this one because I haven't read what you put together, but you sounded like you were excited to do it because you, you told me, I have one for sure that I want to do on intermittent fasting, <laughs> which is always a good yeah. sign because we've covered it before. So the fact that, that you want to do that is great. Um, the second one is going to be on ketone supplementation, which I'm excited for because that was one where I just, I've never never bought into the hype. I've also never consumed anything with ketones in it, so I can't really speak too highly of it. I haven't dug into the research much. It just seemed so, once I saw like uh, ketone water at the store one time, I was like, okay, this is it. But then again, I've seen uh, protein Snickers at the, at the yeah. store as well. So I guess, and I can't hate on protein. So um, I, I don't know, but I'm excited to get on that. And then the last one is the activity trackers, which is probably going to be the most applicable, I think, because there's a lot of people who use, uh, including myself, I'm wearing an aura ring right now, but we use these activity trackers to track steps or sleep or calories burned. And uh, I'm excited to see if it's worth it, if it's worth the money, if it's worth the hype, if how accurate they are and what we can take away from it. So, um, man, take it away. Let's dive into intermittent fasting. That's the first one. Okay. So I, I did tell you I want to do this one, um, and that's because a new study came out. Um, mm. And it kind of helps us understand how intermittent fasting compares to like normal dieting, like a, just a straight 500 calorie deficit. Um, so to back up a little bit, uh, you've talked about to Grant Tinsley before, and I'm sure people have heard of him if they're listening. Um, so he's kind of the main, the, the center of the research that we care about because uh, he uses healthy young adults, youngish, um, who are trained training. or untrained. Um, so I wanted to start there. So back in, I think it was 2016, he did a study where he had people intermittent fast and there's a control group um, and they trained three days a week, both groups. And the intermittent fasting group did a 16-8 on the off days. So days they were not training. So that's four days of intermittent fasting per week, which is like really more like calorie cycling than intermittent fasting. It's just a different kind of way um, to do it because what they found was during their off days, right? When they're intermittent fasting, they ate about 600 calories less than what they, the other group ate. Um, but they were only doing it a couple days a week. So at the end of the study, they were basically the same. Um, it seems like they compensated for that calorie deficit they created on their off days during their training days. Um, so that was one of the first studies back in 2016. And it was kind of like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder if that would hold true across the whole week. And so he teamed up with um, a group, I think they're in Brazil. Uh, for the lead author on the next study was uh, Moro or Mora. Um, and so they did a little more applicable. So they used trained people, intermittent fasting, seven days a week, 16, eight window, high protein, um, eight weeks, and they found that um, the intermittent fasting group ate again about two or 300 calories less per day. Um, 
and lost more fat mass and kind of retain their lean mass. So this tells us, all right, maybe there's something to intermittent fasting if we do it, you know, properly every day. And so this got a big stir in the community. It was like, oh, what, what is this? This is like a new way to diet. And so Tinsley came back with a different study and it was a little bit shorter um, and had a intermittent fasting group. So again, 16-8 high protein diet. And then he had a group that was prescribed a 25% calorie deficit, which is, you know, pretty decent deficit. It's like four or 500 calories, honestly, for most people. Um, and they found that there weren't any differences when you prescribed a diet versus intermittent fasting. So again, intermittent fasting is working, but it's not necessarily working better than just saying, hey, eat X amount of calories less. And the newest study kind of confirms that. Uh, so they took a more macronutrient-based diet approach, which is what we typically use is like, hey, I'm gonna take a little bit from fat, a little bit from carbs, or you know, kind of ratios. Um, and so they had a 500 calorie deficit for eight weeks. Same thing, both groups lost the same amount of weight, maintain the same amount of muscle. Um, so if we take all of those together, there, there was a point in the research where people got really excited and they were like, this could be something really cool. But it turns out it doesn't really matter that much. Um, so what I tell people and what I'll kind of recommend for the listeners is use it as a, as a tool. If you have clients or yourself who want to kind of try intermittent fasting and see if it's easier than just a straight deficit, go for it. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a, just a tool for us. Do, you know, Grant Tinsley pretty well, right? Personally. Yeah. 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 Do you know why he's, I, I guess I'm curious. Um, and you might not have the answer. I'm surprised I didn't ask him this cause I interviewed him about fasting. Uh, what his thing is for fasting? I guess I, the reason I ask is because I think there's, my mind goes, he either thinks there's something more to it that he's trying to discover or he knows that it's a really good topic that that people will grab onto and want to learn more about because I even know like I haven't heard him talk about this forever but I even remember like Lane Norton talking about like one of his first studies was on I think protein dosing or something like that and he did it because he thought you had to have leucine every so often and then he did the study and realized like oh shit I guess I was wrong so sometimes you go into it with the motivation of like I'm going to prove my theory right you know and then Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Do you know what his motive has been? I, so I don't know, but I think what probably happened, so this is the, the scientist in me, right? Is he probably had a question, like intermittent fasting has been used in, in disease and in obesity for, for a while before this. Um, so it was probably something like, does this work in like me, right? Like, should I use intermittent fasting? Kind of like you said. Um, but then once you do one study, so you, so his first study was like, oh, there's something there. They're eating less on their fasting days. That's only a couple of days a week. So now we got to test across the whole week, right? And now we got to do it in people who are, they have a control group and they have a dieting group. Um, so it's more of like a line of research that once you get into, that's just easy. You figured it out. Um, you know, the, the nuances, like the, the things you have to be aware of. Um, your outcome measures, you know, body composition is really good at. So I imagine it's kind of like one of his lines of research that he has, and he might be like getting out of it because scientists do that too. Like they'll study something for five to 10 years and I'll be like, cool, I got my answers. I'm out. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes they go on for like 20 or 30 years. So I'm not sure his, but I imagine those factors are involved. 
Yeah. I feel like, uh, and that makes a lot of sense. And I, I feel like the more I listen to this topic, the more I, I dig into it, the more research comes out, the more and more we kind of see that it's, it's really just a better way to adhere to your calories for some people. And I think there was even, I can't remember who was talking about it. And I'd be really interested if you knew this. Um, it must've been like a meta analysis across the board of just really all types of diets. And it was basically, it came to this conclusion of just like all diets work essentially is what it boiled down to. So there's really no right diet. Um, so it's hard for us to even choose a camp because for some people, intermittent fasting works super well. And for others, it doesn't, you know, I'm personally love eating in the morning, so it just won't work for me. And it could be completely psychological, but cause I tell myself that I love eating in the morning and I'm probably going to be that mm-hmm. way. Um, however, there's still some people that are in the, the science realm who really aren't in the fitness or, or, body fat, body comp, like they don't care about that stuff as much and they still promote fasting quite a bit. Um, and I'm not talking about like the, the crazy gurus, but there's people that talk a lot about health metrics and, um, even some like productivity and stuff like that. And I could see that one because I am more productive early in the morning before I eat. And I think it's just, I'm kind of just riding the coarse wave and I'm up and I'm fresh. I just got up, you know? Um, but do you, I mean, going through all this, have you found anything outside of the calories? Cause I mean, even autophagy was a big one and they're like, well, calorie deficit cr- increases autophagy too. So maybe it was just that, you know, and I feel like a lot of things keep doing that insulin sensitivity. Oh, well, calorie deficit and fat loss do that too. So is it really that have you found anything that it's like, Oh, that's a health benefit. It may not relate to fat loss, but that is a health benefit that only a period of fasting does work for. Um, so we, I don't, I, I feel like maybe we didn't cover it. Maybe I did it on Instagram or something, but I did, I did at least a, do a week on fasting and cognition because there was this question that I think kept coming up with us. And I didn't find anything specific to say, you know, it's super beneficial because of this. Um, there were some studies that showed like cognitive performance does increase in some people. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of like a personal type thing. A lot of times what I feel this, uh, is that if I, eat in the morning, I'm kind of interrupting my flow, right? So if you sit down and you have your, maybe you have your coffee or whatever, you have your water and you get to working, right? And you're going, like you got to stop and eat, right? So it, it almost stops your flow. And so that could be part of it. Um, but I, I didn't really find that much in the, in the scientific realm um, to explain why or if it did anything like super beneficial. I guess it's all just really speculation then, right? Yeah. I mean, there are a couple good studies, um, but they just, yeah, it's just kind of like one study you'll find that it helps and one study you'll find that it doesn't help. It's it's figuring out what's the the difference between those two is where you're going to find your answer. And we don't have, we need more research for that. What do you think keeps these people holding on to it? so tightly um because i'm i I really could care less if people fast i have no issues with it whatsoever um i personally am am more of the mindset of um just telling people what is the honest truth and letting them decide what the best route is for them you know i like macros not because macros are special but because it gives us a number and you can't like numbers don't lie it's a math equation at that point and we can kind of be more, uh, I mean, no, nothing's ever guaranteed, but we're way more likely to be able to guarantee a result if we can tr- like track and use math to formulate a reason for you to get results versus a like special thing we're implementing like fasting, you know, but, um, I don't, I just don't understand why people are grabbing onto it so hard. I, I think people, um, they want to grasp 
for something, right? Whether it's a supplement, whether it's a, you know, a, an event, some tool, right? So fasting is one of those. And, and it's really easy to go, ah, that's it. That's what's going to fix me, or that's what's going to make me better. Um, and it's probably psychological. Uh, I'm not sure why, honestly, but again, people just like things that are going to, they think are going to make them better. Like a new pair of shoes. I'm going to run faster, right? I got these new shoes. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure. Sometimes I just kind of, like I used to let, just let clients have it. Be like, go for it. You want to fast? That's fine. We can do that. We can work that in your plan. That's mm-hmm. Um, so I try not to let it like as a scientist bother me too much. <laughs> I'm just like, whatever. Yeah. You know, I get more upset or bothered by, uh, quote unquote influencers or gurus or coaches pushing it really hard than I do clients believing in it. Cause I'm more likely to not tell a client my honest opinion if I think it's going to negatively impact them. Cause I was even digging into, I, I did a podcast. I just recorded it, um, on uh, genetics and whether genetics play a role in the result you get. And obviously genetics play a role, but, um, the extent of what the, the role they play is kind of dependent on your goal. Um, for example, a bodybuilding, I mean, there, a lot of it is, is symmetry. There's a lot of genetics and muscle bellies and lengths and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but fat loss, even though like I really went down the rabbit hole with the FTO gene and the obesity genetics, and a lot of it is it's it's there, but it's also not – there's research to show that it doesn't actually stop you from losing fat. So kind of my conclusion was actually at the end of it was like, you know, it's more likely – and then this isn't like completely what epigenetics is, but like, you know, the people use excuse of like, well, my parents were overweight, and so, you know, I was overweight. It's in our genes, and it's like, well – they might be overweight because their lifestyle habits, choices, and things that influence their genes. And if they had those habits and lifestyle choices, they probably raised you with those and then you have, you're overweight. So you can't like just be like, oh, screw it. I'm overweight. That's my genes. It's, it's not. Like you can lose weight. Um, but the point of what I was getting to is uh, I, as I was digging this, there was this study on aerobic. Uh, there's an, I can't remember what the gene is, but there's a gene that helps aerobic performance. Um, and they took these people, they tested their aerobic performance. And then afterwards they told them after the genetic test, what gene they had, but they actually told the people who had the good gene that they had the bad gene. And they told the people with the bad gene Ooh. that they had the good gene and their performance was dictated by what they were told. So there was people who had the good gene, but did worse on the next aerobic test because they were told that they had the bad gene, right? So you can kind of like, and, and again, there's also so many genes that there could be genes that, yeah, you have this good gene, but then it cancels out with this bad gene and so on and so forth. So you can't really grab onto it. Um, but I think uh, there's, the point is, is there's just so much research coming out on all these things as we go. And every topic we talk about, I feel like, I mean, even just with Grant, like you were like, well, this year and then three years later and then three years later. And so a lot of yeah. these gurus, I'm assuming, they see a study on autophagy with intermittent fasting that didn't really control the variables well enough because it's the first study. They grab it, they run with it, they become a published best-selling Amazon author on this topic, and then two years later, a, a, like a study comes out debunking it, and they're already in this, like they've already dug themselves into this dish. They're like, I'm, pff, I'm gonna own it, I'm gonna stay here and be stubborn because they don't wanna lose any credibility of what they've built because they're already bought in so much. Um, and I think that's what people have to really be aware of, which is why it's hard to come across. Like like people ask all the time, what are the best like nutrition and training books as of late? And I'm like, it's hard because, you know, training, there's some good textbooks, but with nutrition books, it's, it's the same thing. It's textbooks or you have to seek out professionals because it's usually books like that, that come out. Like, uh, I mean, not to Mm. call out people's name, but I think it's Jason Fung, like would come out with a book and that was a a best-selling book. And it was based on a lot of this stuff that is being debunked. And that's, that's where I get bothered. I think especially because he's a doctor. 
yeah awesome. yeah there's a couple a couple of people you gotta watch out for um but the the digging yourself into a hole is is never advise like career advice number one never go get into a hole that you can't like get out of or you're depending on your livelihood from because that's just a recipe for you to do bad things and make poor decisions yeah you know what i've uh and this is credit to you this i have something i've learned just from interacting with you so much over the last couple years is when i do podcasts like the one i just did which is it's on genetics and i pulled up a bunch of research i looked into and every single time i go into a conclusion of a study or anything i say my thoughts and interpretation of this personally is blah, 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 blah. Because there's so many different outlooks of what is being told. And, and that's, I think it's important to say, like, we don't really know, but this is what I think is going on here, you know? Um, and that's mm-hmm. where you can find somebody that's pretty trustworthy. But at a certain point, I think it's going to lean in one way. I think at this point, you can say it's starting to lean pretty f- heavily in the favor of it's just calories in versus calories out versus intermittent fasting, right? Yeah, yeah pretty much. Um, you know, there are always nuances with, like, you know, highly palatable foods and things like that. But in the grand scheme of things, calories matter a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, last quick question on intermittent fasting is, have you ever come across anything for gut health or digestion? I've heard a lot of people claim that they have better digestion or gut health from that. I haven't heard of any research on it, but I've always been like, that would make sense. I mean, you're just giving your body a break from digesting for a little bit. I mean, that makes, that seems like it would work. Oh, I I have not, nobody's done any gut my biome stuff on on intermittent fasting i might have to email grant and be like yo <laughs> got a study for you we need to collect some poop <laughs> i could see it making sense from a, a digestive stress perspective if somebody's like yeah. bloated all the time stuff like that um when we start getting into gut bacteria and all that stuff i can't i don't i wouldn't know any mechanism why it would improve that but um that's often what i tell people is like hey you're probably just giving your gut a break yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I would, I guess it depends what your window is too. Cause like there's some, not to get too far off, but there are like four hour windows where you go 20 hours of fasting and four hours of food. And you're like, how, how can you eat 2000 calories in four hours? If you're eating healthy, like it's really hard. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, all right. So to continue with the guruism or maybe not, we'll see what you end up coming up with. Uh, ketone supplementation is the next study that we're digging into. Okay. So ketone supplements are only like five or six years old. Uh, so it's like a new era of supplement or a new like product. We'll call it of supplements. Uh, there's two main kinds. You have ketone salts, ketone esters, ketone salts, very self-explanatory. They have a big sodium molecule on the ketone, right? So when you eat it to make sure the ketone actually gets into your blood system, the salt comes off in your stomach, ketone goes in your blood, a little simplified, but that's how it works. Um, ketone esters are kind of protected and they get into your blood a slightly different way. Um, but they both elevate ketones in your blood. So like you could, you, you and I could take some ketones, salts or esters and measure our ketone blood levels. And it would go up like within probably 30 to 60 minutes. Um, so ketone supplements do increase blood ketones. That's like number one. Almost every study has shown that. And that's really cool. That's like, hey, they work, right? Well, turns out that they don't, they, the ketone salts do not, there's, there's not been any studies to show they improve performance. Um, in fact, there's a couple studies to show they kind of 
inhibit performance or decrease performance. And that's due to that um, gut problem where there's just a huge sodium load in your gut and it, and it makes you like gastrointestinally just not good. Um, so it decreases performance. <clears throat> now the ketone esters, that was one of the first ketones studied um, in exercise supplements. And it increases performance in some studies, like there's two or three. Um, so the mechanism is, or the idea is that you get ketones in your blood, your muscles can use ketones, therefore you can exercise longer um, because they're a little more efficient than you know glucose and you run out of glucose and glycogen at some point. Um, there's also a little bit of evidence to suggest they can help you reform glycogen. So like exercise recovery, um, or prevent overreaching, uh, the ketone esters again. So there's like one or two studies with that. Um, I'm pretty skeptical with like, and this is only with endurance exercise, by the way, there's no studies on resistance training. There's really no studies on fat loss. Um, but with endurance performance, there's probably 10 or 12 now. Um, and it doesn't seem like they help performance. Um, if they do, it's the ketone ester and you have to take it for an extended period. Most of them don't help acute performance. Uh, there is kind of a, an interesting component that's recently come up and that is ketone esters can um, reduce hunger which is pretty powerful. Like there's, there's one study. Um, so Brianna Stubbs is one of the main researchers in this area. Um, Dom is the other one. Uh, Andrew Kutnick is a good one. Um, so there, there are a couple of people looking at these. And um, there, again, there was one study that reduced hunger by taking ketones and hunger hormones too, and subjective hunger. So uh, I think there's some application, maybe long-term for people who have hunger issues. Um, that would be a little bit of a reach right now. Uh, there's also kind of, if you dig really deep and you go into the animal research, which doesn't always translate to humans, but it's important to bring it up. Um, there's some like cardiovascular function health things, some brain health benefits, um, some heart failure benefits. So more of the disease type stuff. So that's, that's kind of what I found. And, and it's an evolving field too. Like it's evolving much quicker, especially in the past couple of years than most fields. Do you need to be on a ketogenic diet for these to be effective? No. And that's the, that's the, when they first started, that was the idea was ketogenic diets like are supposed to help performance in reality. They don't. Like they are not good for performance, but if you can mimic that stage or that state in your body with these supplements without actually being ketogenic, maybe you could get the benefits and that's kind of how the field started. What would be the, uh, hypothesized benefits of energy or performance production, anything of ketones in the ketogenic diet versus, um, a carbohydrate-based diet. Like why, if, if we're like, oh, well, a ketogenic diet doesn't work better for performance, let's stick with carbs. Why would we even want to add ketones in, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So ketones are more um, metabolically efficient for your muscles. Mm -hmm. So like your muscles use them and they don't require oxygen to break down. 
Um, so like you could use them in an aerobic bout, right? So your body could use ketones instead of using kind of the glucose, the glycogen, the like anaerobic system, right? Because you have a limit there. So that was the idea. Um, hasn't really panned out that well. Is, and when you say it hasn't panned out, is the problem becoming that, um, yes, it is an alternative fuel source, and yes, it may be uh, more efficient, but it's not going to, I mean, your potential uh, performance isn't going to reach as high of a peak with it, and therefore it's like, yeah, I mean, it's a substitute fuel source, but it's just not as effective as, of a fuel source, basically. Um, so I think the, the main problem now is figuring out how much to give what kind, like, so there's lots of different ketone esters. I said one, but there are like four versions. Um, so figuring out the exact molecule to kind of optimize the kind of uptake into the muscle or the brain or whatever you're trying to get it into. Um, I think that's their problem now. And they're, I think Oxford was working on this. So HVMN was working on it a little bit. Um, they must have like 10 or 12 different ketone esters. And I don't know right now which one's like the best. Um, I think the ketone, like the, the was it R, it's like the R, the R isomer one is pretty good. Um, but I, I just don't think they're quite there yet. I've heard, uh, the only people I've really heard, uh, seeing benefits of it, uh, and again, it's just their claim. So it's more anecdotal would be, um, people who use them in a fasted state again, more along the lines of like workflow. They're like, Oh, I use them when I'm trying to work. But I've also heard that it's a, it's a short lived bout. So they're like, when I have a time block, I really need to focus. I put it in the morning, take ketones and it's helpful. Part of me wonders, is that placebo, you know, like it's in your, it's in your head kind of thing, which granted, if it is, fuck it, if it's working great, you know, get into your flow. But, um, that's the only thing I've ever really heard, you know, um, and part of me always wonders too, even if, even if ketones were a more efficient fuel, I always think, well, the muscle is predominantly water. And if carbohydrates are going to bring in more water, wouldn't I just want more carbs because more carbs equals more water, which equals more fullness, which equals probably a better pump, better performance, better recovery, probably going to build more muscle. I even thought that with the diet breaks where there was an issue of, um, well, yeah, but you tested too close after the, I think it was the Campbell study. Cause it was like a lot of that could have been water. And I was like, yeah, well, if the muscles primarily water and we're retaining more water because diet breaks, that's probably a good thing long-term for muscle. I would assume, um, that could probably be picked apart by somebody smarter than me, but, um, I just don't see, uh, ketones. I'm actually, I'm glad that there wasn't some like, Oh, actually they're amazing Cody. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, no, especially not like, so for resistance training, there's like nothing. Yeah. Um, there might be one study that I missed, uh, but there's always that chance. Um, but like, yeah, don't, don't take ketones to get a pump or anything. And um, that's not stick to your beta alanine and your you know, carnosine type things. Yeah. Well, even the first, uh, that I'm aware of, cause I actually talked to the person that did it, a ketogenic study on CrossFitters. Um, and we had a good conversation about it and she was pretty candid about it. It, it didn't really follow a very meticulous ketogenic diet it was kind of like taking crossfitters and giving them a low carb diet and they saw performance improvements in body fat loss i'm like well you're taking a bunch of gen pop crossfitters who've never dieted before and putting them on a low carb diet that you're calling keto like any diet's gonna work at that point um i'm more interested in people who are at a plateau or looking to maximize their potential stuff like that i just don't see any of this being as effective 
Yeah, there's, um, and, and we always compare it to like opportunity cost, right? So what else could you be spending that money on or, you know, spending that time on, right? And, and there's a ton of other supplements. So caffeine, uh, creatine, um, betaine, beta alanine. There's, there's a couple, you know, supplements I'd put above it for sure. Yeah. Um, that I'm just like, I'd rather do that. Or I don't know, maybe go get a massage after a workout every now and then. Like that, that might, you know, you might see the, the one to 2% benefit that you're going to see as an elite cyclist. Cause that's who these studies are using. Um, instead yeah no i 100% agree i'm glad that the the conclusion was that um and i kind of hope that doesn't change but uh all right I will tell. final study uh the the fitness trackers i'm excited for this one what did you find here okay so a there are a ton of different fitness trackers oh, yeah. there's like 500 it's ridiculous <laughs> i i looked at the literature and i was just like this is insane how do people even keep up because by the time you get a study approved and done and published, like that process, a good study, you know, takes two, sometimes three years. Like there's, you're on version like five mm -hmm. when you have one yeah. and, and all their algorithms have changed. The tech has changed. Um, so it was hard and, and I haven't quite finished the blog. I need to clean it up a little bit, um, but it was hard to really like get good literature where people would compare like, five different trackers because the early literature, like, do you remember Jawbone? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So like it was them and, and Fitbit mm -hmm. and Garmin was kind of around. Um, so a lot of the early studies compare those two and it's like, well, nobody really uses Jawbone anymore. Like people use Fitbit, but Jawbone's kind of, eh. you know, people use Apple now or yeah. um, the Nike bands or, you know, the aura ring. What you know, I'm curious about that too. Um, so we'll talk about that later, but, yeah, so in a nutshell, I will say they are somewhat accurate. They're probably like 80% accurate with about a 20% called standard deviation. So if you take, for example, 10,000 steps, your watch tells you you take 10,000 steps, you could plus or minus like 2,000 off of that. Um, in terms of energy expenditure, so like say you hit your, your button on your watch and you go work out, uh, they're really not good. Like really not good. Like never use, never use your energy expenditure from a treadmill or your watch yeah. or your phone. Like it's just not worth it. And is more likely to compound problems, um, than make it any better. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's definitely don't use it for energy expenditure steps. They're okay. Like, okay. Um, sleep, I think sleep time, they're pretty good. Uh, sleep stage, um, not that great, but they're getting better. Um, heart rate, you got like, that's probably the, the thing they're best at heart rate, like resting heart rate or recovery heart rate. As you increase intensity, most of the studies show that they don't correlate well to your actual heart rate. So they'll get off, um, which kind of sucks because I've been using mine to do my runs and like target heart rates. And I'm like, man, it's like 10% off. I could be like at 180 and not even know it um, <laughs> when I'm trying to hit like 160 or 170, you know, yeah. and then that's the difference between like my lactate threshold and not hitting it. Yeah. Um, so the heart rate's the best one, but it's still, you know, like 10% ish. Um, let's see. What else are, what else do we have? What else do they track? Um, the only I think those are the main, 
Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of is HRV score. Like sometimes they give you a readiness oh, score, yeah. which I'm assuming is going to be uh, some kind of equation based on how is your sleep, uh, how is your like how much activity did you have, and then your heart rate variability. Yeah, yeah. So the so like the Whoop band is super popular, um, and the headquarters are like right around my house. Like I walk by there to get coffee sometimes. I'm like, hey guys. <laughs> um, but that one uses HR, uh, HRV heart rate variability, and seems to be pretty accurate. There's a couple studies on the Aura Ring and the Whoop, and I'm I've been pretty impressed. Like that and the Apple Watch seem to be like the big three where I'm like, okay. I'm going to have three tech pieces. It's going to be those three. They're kind of overlap in some aspects, but not all. Um, but they each seem to have like certain benefits. Um, so I think the heart rate variability, like data and studies are not good. Like they're just straight up not great. Like the literature is all over the place. Maybe we'll do that one time. Um, but the idea of tracking something and having the ability to, to have support to say, hey, you know, I don't feel great right now. And then you look at your your watch, or your app or whatever, and it says, oh, your uh, heart rate availability is, is super high, super low. Well, it's like, okay, well, that makes sense. Um, so it's more like support for how you're already feeling mm-hmm. versus like you see a number and you're like, I feel like this because of this number. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, in overall, I would say they're very useful but true accuracy is not that great. Yeah. Well, I can imagine it's, it's got to be without making a device that is extremely inconvenient and uncomfortable to wear. I can imagine there, there can't be super accurate. It's like body fat scanners. They're pretty inaccurate unless you pay a ton of money and go to a special place. And it's like, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, the cheaper route yeah. is it's harder. Um, I think with like uh, I've I've ha- I've used the Whoop, I've used the Apple Watch, and I've used the O Ring. I've used all three, and I've stuck with the O Ring the longest. Um, and it was purely through uh, really just like usability. Like it was, it, it's the easiest for me. I wear a black wedding ring, so I was like, oh, I'm gonna swap it, and it looks like I'm still just wearing my wedding ring. That's perfect because I don't like wearing things on my wrist. Um, I also have eczema, so it like the silicone from the Apple Watch broke out my wrist. So then I switched to the Whoop nah. band. The Woo Band, I just was like, I just, I want to take it off sometimes because I did like, and this is me being me. It doesn't look cool. I'm like, I like wearing nice watches if I'm going to wear a watch and I can't because I got the Woo Band on me. So I was like, oh, the ring is perfect because I don't wear multiple rings. But um, that was purely the reason, you know, I charge it like once or twice a week and it lasts super long. It's like, it's easy to use. Um, the readiness score I've seen has been not that telling, to be honest with you, Um it generally stays about the same no matter what, which is kind of where I'm like, okay, I'm always, I'm always like, eh, you can kind of train hard, but not too hard. Like I'm never like a really high score and I'm never in like the red where it's like, you're not good. I'll get, um, for example, last night, uh, my daughter has some kind of cold or something. She's, she's super stuffed up. Can't breathe. So she slept in our bed, which means I don't sleep. Um, and, uh, so I got no sleep last night at five, 20 in the morning this morning. I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to call it quits. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm just going to get up way before my alarm. And uh, my readiness score was fine, like average. I'm like, that is such bullshit because I am exhausted right now. It doesn't make any sense. Um, And then I'll get like eight hours of sleep. And I'm like, I'm going to have like a super high score and just go crush some PRs. You're okay. It's like, 
what the <laughs> hell? So um, the one thing I did notice is when I switched directly from an Apple Watch to an Aura Ring and I did not change my uh, schedule, my routine, anything at all, my weekly average step count went from about seven to 8,000 to 10 to 11,000. And I didn't Ooh. do anything. So that's where I was like, immediately was like, oh shit, either that was really inaccurate or this is really inaccurate. But again, it goes kind of to that like, which one is it? I don't know. Really what I did was like, well, I'm still just at a maintenance level step count anyway. I'm not going to change anything. When I'm ready, I'm just going to base it off of what my new number is because it's more about the trend and the change versus the actual number. But um, but that was interesting. It was, it was pretty different there. Um, and then the sleep seemed to be the most accurate with the Oura Ring for me um, or maybe just the easiest to understand. And that was a huge benefit to me because more than anything, it just actually proved to me that I wasn't getting enough good sleep. And I just purposely was like, okay, this is really good accountability to see the change happen. And I did, and I saw it track better and that made me more accountable to keep sleeping better. And I feel way better because of it. Unless my daughter nice. comes into our bed and gets sick. But, um, yeah. So that, I mean, that's my feedback on, on some of them. I've, uh, and then I would just agree every client I've ever worked with. I always tell, do not pay attention to calorie expenditure. I don't give a shit what it is. I don't want you to look at it. Don't pay attention to it. It doesn't matter. It's not going to change my nutrition plan for you at all. We're still eating nope. the same calories. You're not earning them back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I think that you touched on something really important there is is when you have an activity tracker, you want to look at your trends. Like it, it doesn't really matter how accurate it is because it's pretty reliable. So it should give you the same measurements over time or very similar measurements. Um, most of them are, are the, the scores on reliability. Like I took 10,000 steps. I took 10,000 steps pretty accurate together, maybe not an actual 10,000 steps, you know, the accuracy, but they're pretty reliable. Um, so just use your, your trends to kind of guide you there. That's, that's what I do too. Yeah. I, that, that I would apply that to body fat scanners too. And especially with like, I had somebody ask me about this and, um, they were kind of curious why like bodybuilders still use calipers or like, there's so much more technology. Why are they using calipers? They're so old. And I was like, well, a lot of the other ones, they're all inaccurate, but the other ones, because they're new technology, they can actually end up having more fluctuations in my experience because of water intake, sleep, sodium, carbs, stuff like that. Whereas the calipers are going to be inaccurate, but the trend is going to be more consistent. Um, I mean, I remember I, I did it every week during my prep and I remember being like six, seven weeks out and reading at like 4%. And at the time, very, I mean, this is probably almost a decade ago. I'm like, fuck yeah, like I'm 4% body fat six weeks out. I wasn't at all. Maybe, maybe eight, maybe, you know, like, I, I mean, I was really, I got shredded, but like at the very, very end, I still don't even know if I would have reached that level. I mean, that's really, really, and I don't really know actually what stage lean bodybuilders get to. And I was extremely, I mean, like thin skin, like crazy. It was, it was most sure I've ever been. So I was really low, but what I was really looking for was like, okay, can I get to three and a half in a week or two? Because I was at four now, right? I'm not for, but yeah. that's okay. Like, can I get beneath that? You know, and you just want that trend and that's really what matters. Yeah. The, the calipers are interesting too, because like where you pinch is where most people like hold their fat. So like bodybuilders, once you start getting lean, like I hold my fat, the last place it comes off is well glutes, but also like my lower abdomen. Mm -hmm. So you could actually measure, you could just, you know, take that measurement and see like it getting smaller and you just know, you're like, okay, like I can pinch or somebody can pinch me 
and that measurement in millimeters is getting smaller. Like, yeah. cool, it's working. Whatever I'm doing is working. Yeah. And visually, I see I look better. Shit. I mean, I actually would probably recommend that more so than doing the formulation afterwards anyway, because then you can get out of the mindset of actual percentages of body fat, which can mess with people's head because they get into like these like specific, specific goals they're trying to approach or they heard so-and-so got to this percentage and it's like, it it doesn't matter. So I actually like that better. Just look at the millimeters and go off that. Yeah. I I haven't, I think I've had, I've done that once, but you know, yeah. So, well, good, man. This is a good one. Uh, do you have any concluding thoughts on any of the, the research? I feel like all of them were, uh, except the last one, were kind of like debunking a little bit, and which is cool because I thought about when you texted me, I was like, we should do a, like a Mythbuster one at some point. And this kind of, not really myths, but we kind of debunked a couple of things. And um, I think the, the application of the fitness tracker is good. Like it's not the most accurate thing, but that's okay. Keep using it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, so like the, the intermittent fasting stuff is, is not, I wouldn't call it a closed book yet, but it's pretty close to being like, okay, we kind of got this figured out. We're not going to find anything mind blowing from that. Mm-hmm. Um, the ketone supplements, I think over the next five or six years, you'll see some application maybe become more clear um, for certain populations or whatever it's going to be. So, you know, that one's right now, maybe not so great, but later there's potential. Um, we'll see if it pans out. And then that trivia trackers, like I said, like it's nice to just use them to, to influence your health and your behavioral like things, your lifestyle. Yeah. That's, that's what I would say for those. Yeah, 100%. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. As always, uh, leave us a five-star rating and review. If you like this podcast, share it on your story on Instagram. Tag myself and Brandon. Both of our handles for Instagram are in the description of this podcast. And if you have topics of research that you want us to cover, there is a uh, little link in the description of this podcast that says Ask Boom Boom. You can click that. You can fill out the form. Tell us what you want us to dig into, and we will dig into it for you. Until next time, we'll catch you then. Bye.